when we were singing just now, I was thinking like, man, I'm getting chills. Is God moving or is it just freezing in here? <laughs> 59 degrees. When, uh, when I was in elementary school, I remember learning long division. Anybody here remember that process? Yes, long division. I can remember learning long division and not really uh, understanding it at first and just like making up a bunch of stuff on the paper, just adding and subtracting and writing down numbers randomly because I didn't get it and I didn't want to ask for help. But once I got it, then I got it. You know, once I asked for help, once I listened to how to do it, then I understood it. And, uh, and I think I've totally forgotten it since then. But that uh, is long division, right? How many of us do that? Like, don't ask for help when we don't understand something. For most of us, asking for help just doesn't come very naturally. It's like a last resort. Sometimes we think, I'm not going to ask for help because that's like a sign of weakness in our world. It's like admitting defeat. Asking for help is essentially like saying, I'm powerless, uh, I, I'm not self-sufficient, I can't figure this out on my own. When you think about it, the truth is, that's correct. We, when we ask for help, are in fact admitting all of those things, but that's okay. Asking for help is, um, it is a sign of weakness. It is a sign of self, uh, a lack of self-sufficiency, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And asking for help actually allows for God to show up in our lives. And there is a French poet and mystic, Simone Weil, who said this, compassion directed toward oneself is true humility. And today we're talking about the word help, asking for help. In John chapter 2 in the scriptures, we read the story of Jesus turning water into wine. This is a very well-known story. It's the first of Jesus' signs recorded in the Gospel of John. Now, as I read this story to you this morning, would you notice the exchange between Mary and Jesus in this passage? And how? notice how Mary goes to Jesus for help in this situation. John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. In the ancient world, a wedding running out of wine was a serious issue. Hospitality was a sacred obligation in that culture at that time. So to run out of wine meant shame. It meant disgrace for the family. Running out of wine would be like ruining the memory of the wedding day for this couple. So when the wedding party started running out of wine, did you notice Mary approaches Jesus and lets him know, we've got a problem. Um, It's kind of funny, Max Lucado says, uh, basically you could say the first prayer ever prayed to Jesus is, Jesus, we have a problem, there's no wine. (laughs) Ultimately, Mary requesting help from Jesus made space for God to do a miracle. The passage makes no suggestion at all that Jesus came to the wedding in Cana with the intention of doing a miracle. It is this request for help that opens up space for God to work a miracle. It was the request to intervene in the situation that caused Jesus to act. So here's the question for us. What do you do when you need help? Do you try to figure it out on your own? Do you pretend like you know what to do? Or do you cry out to God for help? This first miracle uh, in Jesus' ministry happened because Mary asked for help. If Mary would not have reached out for help, if she did not admit her need, or if she would have tried to figure it out on her own, solve the problem herself, she may have missed out on this miracle of God. I don't know about you, but I am not always very good at asking for help. I am not even very good at admitting to myself that I need help, let alone asking others. Uh, Most of us do a lot of pretending, both with ourselves and to others, that everything is fine, we got this. Most of us do a lot of avoiding, stuffing, dismissing, of our needs. We pretend everything is fine. We're self-reliant. We do not admit the pain of our losses, big and small. But here's the thing. The truth of the matter is, I come to you with a broken body that has scars. And you come to me the same. All of us 
have experienced, are experiencing, will experience losses over things we have loved. When you lose something that you love, big or small, it creates brokenness. And that brokenness must be grieved. If it isn't grieved, if it isn't grieved fully, it, it comes out sideways. It, it comes out often in addictions. The Bible actually teaches us to cry out for help, and the Bible's word for that is lament. The Bible teaches us to cry out to God for help, and the word for that is lament. Because we've all experienced losses. Those losses, they create brokenness. And grief actually brings healing to those broken places in our hearts. But we have to grieve to the level that we've loved. If you love something a lot and you lose it, you have to grieve to the level that you loved. And often in our world today, there, we're, we're so committed to comfort and afraid of pain that we just want to stay in this middle. But what happens when we stay in the middle and we don't really grieve to the depth that we have loved is we miss out on the joy and the celebration on that level as well. Because joy and celebration in earnest can only be experienced to the degree in which we have grieved the losses over the brokenness, that's actually how healing comes. So we can avoid, we can stuff, we can ignore, but what happens is we just live in this middle. We don't experience the depths of our pain, but we also don't experience the depths of joy and praise and celebration. And too often in Christian communities, in churches, there is kind of a shushing of lament. So you come into a worship gathering, and sometimes it's like, I think only the happy and clappy are allowed in here. There's a shushing of lament that we do to one another that creates shame. But the Bible instructs us in lament. We have de-emphasized, not just in the church, but in our whole world, we've de-emphasized sadness in our world today because we have embraced a triumphalistic narrative, a triumphalistic storyline, and we're so committed to this that we de-emphasize, disregard, lament. Uh, in his fabulous book called Prophetic Lament, Soon Chan Ra says this, the crying out to God in lament over a broken history is often set aside in favor of a triumphalistic narrative. We're too busy patting ourselves on the back over the problem-solving abilities of the triumphant American church to cry out to God in lament. But lament cannot and must not be ignored. In the biblical world, hope does not emerge from the self-aggrandizing act of recounting our successes. It is the desperate plea for God's intervention 
that arises out of lament that reveals a flickering glimpse of hope. Lament cannot and must not be ignored. And when we ignore our grief and our losses, often it comes out sideways in our lives. Why are we such an addicted society? It often comes out in the form of addiction. Gaber Mate said this, addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the attempt to solve the problem. Addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the attempt to solve the problem. On the day that we adopted our daughter, Lila, from China, you know, it was one of the happiest days of my life. But it was one of the most heart-wrenching, confusing, grief-filled days of her life because she had been living with a foster family in Shanghai with whom she had a very strong bond. So when they placed Lila in my arms and walked away, Lila began to cry and to rail like I have never seen a toddler do before. She was sobbing and heaving like. <laughs> it was not like the crying of somebody stole my toy. It was the crying of deep grief. And as I held her in my arms, she would just <laughs> sob and then she would fall asleep. And then she would wake up and she would look at my face and she would realize that they were gone. And she would just start it all over again, sobbing. <laughs> and then she'd fall asleep in my arms. And that went on for like four hours. And I remember when this was happening, the adoption professionals in the room came over to me and they said, you know, it doesn't feel like it right now, but this is so good that she's doing this. They said she has to get it out. Barbara Brown Taylor says the sadness does not sink a person. It's the energy a person spends trying to avoid sadness that does that. If an imperfect mother like me can hold my daughter as she grieves and rails, how much more can God hold you and handle your sadness, your railing, your grief? And just like Lila, you can sob yourself to sleep and wake up to the face of the one whose love for you knows no limit, whose arms will hold you through that, all of that. Like he can take it. Rumi said, the wailing of broken hearts 
is the doorway to God. The wailing of broken hearts is the doorway to God. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The prophet Isaiah said, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn. When you look at the book of Psalms in the Bible, the Psalms can be broadly, generally lumped into two categories, praise and lament. We focus a lot on the praise, and we tend to neglect the lament. But the scriptures instruct us in lament. Lament is how we cry out for help. A prayer of lament is putting words to the contents of my heart. Sometimes it's simply praying the prayers of lament that are already recorded in the Bible. But let's just define it. What is lament? Lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And we tend to de-emphasize sadness. But can I just give you permission in this space at Platt Park Church? Do you know this whole side balcony is a dedicated space in this worship gathering to lament? We have a wailing wall up there. We have prayers of lament up there. There is space to just sprawl out on the floor if you need to or sit on a couch. There are times when you come in to this space on a Sunday morning for worship and the most holy and necessary and needed work is for you to lament. And I just want you to know you have permission to do that, that praise and lament are both needed. The desire of lament is really to take our complaints, our anger, our sufferings, our frustrations, our heartaches to God. To approach God with these realities of frustration and sorrow that consume us, that distract us, that when we don't grieve those losses in our lives, come out sideways anyway. Psalm 88 says this, Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I've been afflicted and close to death. I've suffered your terrors and am in despair. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. When we lament, we come out of hiding, and we embrace honesty. You know, the first question that God asked the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden is a question we can ask ourselves. It's a super important question. The question is, where are you? Where are you? Because like Gary was talking about a minute ago in his announcement, the, the true self, where are you, is where God meets you. We cannot meet God in our false selves. It's false. So when I'm pretending and when I'm posturing and when I'm self-sufficient and everything is fine, I actually can't meet God there. Because God 
will meet us in our true selves. The piece of that is, where are you? Lament is how the Bible instructs us in the word help. It is about creating an awareness around our internal weather system. When you embrace lament, you are trusting in God's ability to hold it all. It is about going to the depths with God rather than just catastrophic thinking. It's about casting your burdens on God rather than shouldering them alone. Chris Webb is the former president of Renovare Ministries, and he tells this story of one time as a priest, he met a woman, um, and this woman had just realized that her partner of many years had been cheating on her with another woman. It actually became clear that for some time he'd been cheating on her with a string of women. She came to see that their relationship meant far less to him than it had meant to her. And this woman had, he, he had left her, and she found herself grieving and angry and bitter and disoriented and just filled with desperate sorrow. And she came to Chris Webb and she said to him, um, I need help in forgiving him. Well, knowing a bit about the role of lament in our lives, he um, wisely asked her, uh, what do you really want? And she said, I really want him dead. And Chris Webb said, well, then pray that. And she was like, I can't pray that. And he said, what are you going to do, sugarcoat a lie? Do you think God doesn't already know your heart? She said, I can't pray that. And he said, could you pray Psalm 55? And he opened up the scriptures. He said, you know, God wrote this book. These are prayers out of God's book. Could you pray Psalm 55, it is a prayer asking that a betrayer might die. And she said, okay, because it's in the Bible, I'll, I'll pray it. And so she began to pray Psalm 55, this prayer of lament each day. And every time he would see her, he would say to her, is he dead yet? And... Uh, you know, over time, she's praying Psalm 55. She comes to him one day, and she said to him, I, uh, I was praying, you, you told me to only pray what is honest. And this week, I was praying Psalm 55, and I realized it wasn't honest anymore. I wasn't true anymore. I, I don't want him dead anymore. And I'm still angry, but I've moved on to a different psalm. See, forgiveness began in her, but it didn't begin because she did some piety, pious, like Christianese language in prayer. Give me the grace, give me the mercy, give me the forgiveness, God. It began in 
honesty and in lament. Forgiveness began in her, but it was because she cried out for help in honest lament. We need to allow grief and lament to have their way with us so that comfort might come and so that comfort might come from God. Grief and lament need to have their way in us so that comfort may come and so that that comfort might come from God. Chris Webb about prayer says this, if we learn anything from the school of prayer we find in the book of Psalms, often described as the prayer book of the Bible, it's that honesty is everything. The poets who wrote these ancient prayers were unafraid to expose their hearts to God and to the community, creating songs filled with joy, wonder, celebration, pageantry, satisfaction, gentleness, peace, and more, but also with rage, horror, lament, darkness, doubt, shock, and despair. Nothing was held back. When you just look at the Bible from cover to cover, you see the part of lament. As early as Genesis 6, we see God laments. The Lord saw the wickedness of the human race. And the Bible says the Lord regretted that he had made human beings and his heart was deeply troubled. All through the Bible, you see people lamenting. Solomon, Jeremiah, Ezra, they all lament. Hezekiah laments his disease. Isaiah laments the coming savior. Ezekiel laments for Egypt in chapter 30 and then for Pharaoh in chapter 32. Amos laments the house of Israel. Habakkuk laments that God doesn't seem to be acting with the loving kindness he would expect. Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who mourn. Jesus lamented and wept over Lazarus and over Jerusalem on the cross. Jesus laments, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Apostle Paul laments his thorn. The martyrs in Revelation 6 lament. It's like from cover to cover, the Bible teaches us the power of the word help through the instructions of lament. So here's the question. What's your first move when you experience sadness, sorrow, grief in your life or in the world? What's your first move? Is your first move towards yourself, self-sufficiency, I got this stuff, I bury, move on, get busy in your work? Is your first move towards yourself? Or is your first move towards an expert? Like if I just get the right counselor, spiritual director, life coach, somebody, they will fix me? Is your first move towards an expert? Some expert? Or is your first move towards God? In lament, we're calling out for the presence and love of God. We're calling out for Jesus. And as we close, I want to give you a moment to practice writing a lament this morning. So I believe Holly might be here um, to walk around. If you did not get one of these when you walked in, would you raise your hand? Because we're going to do this together right now. Just raise your hand. She'll pass one. There's pens in front of you. This is a one form 
for writing a lament. It is in the form of a French pantoum. And you will see instructions for how to write a lament. You're going to write 12 statements. Six of those will be original. And six of them will just be repeated. So you repeat certain sections. So you'll see line number one, you're going to write who I know God to be right now. Line two, the cause of my lament, like why I cry out. Line three, what the situation makes me feel about God. Line four, what I long to see happen in this situation. And then line five is just going to be a repeat of what you wrote in line two. You're just going to write line two over again. And then line six is a new line. You write whatever you want. Line seven is a repeat of line four. You just write line four again. Line eight is a new line. You write whatever you want. And then nine, 10, 11, and 12 are all repeats. So you will write six original statements. You will repeat six statements. And we're going to actually invite the band to come up, play a little instrumental music to allow us a little space and time right here, right now, before we leave, to write out a prayer of lament to practice. And I want to share with you before we begin this activity a short video clip of my friend Chad lamenting, writing out this prayer of lament. And we were on a retreat and did this together, and then we had an opportunity to share with each other. And I asked him if he would share his lament with our community just via video. Um, Chad is a guy who, he works with Young Life Kids, and he has recently adopted a boy. And uh, there's just, he is, there's a lot he is lamenting in what he sees in his, the life of his adopted son and the um, kids that he works with in Young Life. And so he wrote out this lament and bravely and willingly was willing to share it with us. So this is Chad. And then right after the video, take a few moments to work through this, and then I'll come close us in prayer. Uh, but this is Chad. Let's take a look. God, you are here. You're in my thoughts, actions, life, relationships, and every circumstance I'm involved in. I see racial divide, racism, inequality, and young kids who not only have the deck stacked against them, but then are not given fair, objective hearings. What shot do they have? This situation makes me think you are weak, uninvolved, uncaring, standing by watching, yet never acting. I long to see God tell them that they are loved that there's another way, that they can lament to God, and that God will do something on their behalf. I see racial divide, inequality, no fathers, nobody giving counsel and direction, sheep without a shepherd, the broken leading the broken, a system out to get them. Will this ever change? Will we ever see healing and wholeness? Will we ever see past the color of their skin to see that these boys are really our own. Oh, that these boys would see God and that they'd hear that they are loved and that there's another way, that they can lament their pain to God and that he is present and he hears them. Come to Jesus, boys. He knows you. He knows your whole life. He was there in the beginning and he's here still. Give God your pain, tears, disappointment, and abuse. 
Tell him how you feel about it. Will this ever change? Will we ever see healing and wholeness? Will we ever see past the color of skin to see that these boys are really our own? God, are you weak? Where are you? Why are you not involved in intervening and standing up for these boys? Do you not care? Why do you stand close by? But never are you moved to action. Come to Jesus, boys. He knows you. He knows your whole life. He was there in the beginning, and he's here still. Give God your pain, tears, disappointments, abuse, and injustice. Tell him how you feel about it. God, you are here. You are in my thoughts and actions, life, relationships, and every circumstance I'm involved in.
Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.